Everybody else is still working on the exam, right? Um, due, due today is exam three, which again, like with other assignments that you can turn in online, does mean through six o'clock tomorrow. So if you've turned it in already, that's great. You're done. Um, if you're not, you can look at it. I do have a copy of it. You have, you have given, I've been given everybody a paper copy. There's a digital copy online, both a PDF file where you can print it out if you need to, if you lose it for some reason, and are looking for it at 4 o'clock in the morning tomorrow when you decided to start on it. Right? And there's also an online version. Now I put the online version up there. I, wanted to, I should have given a couple warnings yesterday, but first of all, it, it doesn't grade the whole thing. It grades only the multiple choice and true false. It doesn't actually try to grade any of the rest of it, so I didn't program all that in for having to try it look at, even to look at the fill-ins, let alone the essays. So I'll grade all those manually if you do it that way. But it also is, has to be, had to be split up into two parts. For some reason, the fill-in-the-blank questions didn't transfer. So I've actually added a second part of it. If you're doing it just online, make sure you go in and do not only the exam that was there, but the part two exam, which is just the fill-in questions. So if you have it and you're going to, uh, if you're taking it, if you're still working on it, and you're going to work on it this afternoon or anything, I'll be here till two or so if you want to drop it off in, you know, down in 138 blocker, my office. Um, you can also, you know, if you have to, if you're taking it home and you're working on it tonight, if you can scan it or photograph it, there is a Dropbox on D2L to be able to submit it. So you can submit it on there that way. Or you could key your answers into the digital version. It's not timed, so there's no time limit on it or anything. But you can go in and key it in and just take your answers and transfer them in there. It will give you a grade, but it'll probably say you got 40% or something because it only graded the multiple choice and the true-false. And the other ones, I've got to go back and regrade manually afterwards. So I will take care of that while I'm grading the rest of the, rest of the exams. So it's up to you, however you want to do it. Just, just make sure one way or another I get a copy before 6 o'clock tomorrow. So there's multiple ways to submit it. If you're done with it now and you've given it to me, you're done. You don't even have to worry about anything else I'm going on about right now. If not, just make sure you either submit it, again, photograph, scan it, if you're not going to drop it off to me in my office later, later today. Solar observations, the next set. Hopefully we've started to see the sun peek out a little bit so we can try to get something else by uh, Wednesday. So anything you've gotten since the last ones about a, about a month ago, turn those in. I'll take a look at them. That's the last set I'm going to look at before the, before the project is due the end of the month. Although I'll give you more information about that coming up. Homework 6, which I gave out last week, is due on Friday. So that, that is due. And then quiz six will be coming up for this class on Friday as well. It'll be available Friday through Monday, covering chapter 13, which we finished last Friday, and chapter 14, which we'll be starting on in a few minutes. And then just as a reminder, sort of looking ahead a little bit, your third article review will be due the end of next week. So third and final article review will be due, be due then. So any questions on what's, what's coming up? So the big thing is, don't forget this, because after 6 o'clock tomorrow, it's late. So make sure I get it one way or another. Make sure, make sure I get it. If you've got it and you're done with it now, turn it in after class and be done with it. But otherwise, just make sure I get a copy one way or another before, before 6 o'clock tomorrow. Questions, questions? All righty. On to our picture of the day for today. It's a moon. Not the moon, but a moon. Uh, this is actually one of the moons of Saturn. So tied in very perfectly for my uh, planetary astronomy class because we were just talking about the moon in class today. So we had a moon to look at today. Didn't work out quite as well for this class, but still a very interesting picture of uh, Saturn's moon Dione. So this is one of the moons of Saturn. Uh, it's one of the 
sort of a middle-sized moon. It's not one of the largest moons. It's not one of the teeny tiny moons. It's kind of in between. It's about the 15th largest out of 170 or 180 moons. Makes it sound pretty big, but there's those few real big moons, and then there's tons of these little tiny rocks that are you know, a kilometer across or half a kilometer across that are counted as moons orbiting some of the uh, larger planets. You see that it looks a lot like our own moon, a lot of craters. Maybe no big uh, smooth surfaces, the Maria that we see here, but lots of craters. So impact craters are all over the solar system. We see them all around. So you see the crater, again, we see that cratering all over every place. It's tidally locked to Saturn, just like our moon is locked to us. One side always faces us. We always see the same side of the moon. We see that with all of the moons in the solar system. Each of them are tidally locked to their planet. So they always keep one side facing towards the planet. The other thing that you'll see here is that this was taken not from Earth, not from Hubble Space Telescope or anything. This was actually taken by the Cassini spacecraft orbiting Saturn. When we look at this from Earth, we see a nice little point of light around Saturn. That's about it. Even through the most powerful telescopes, that's what we see. Thank you. That's all you can see. This takes actually getting close, and this was actually, I'm trying to remember, it was stitched together from a number of different images. So it was a number of different images that were taken by the Cassini probe as it flew by the moon and took pictures of it and put together into one big image. So it gives you a view that we can't possibly get from Earth. And one of the reasons we need to get spacecraft out there to be able to study the other planets is because you can't. If we looked at this from Earth, you'd be finding this little tiny speck of light. And we could learn some things about it, but we couldn't learn a lot about it. We couldn't learn a whole lot just because we can't see much. You can't see a nice big disk like we can see on the moon from Earth while telescope looking at the moon. Well, we can see a lot of stuff. Telescope looking at Mars, we can still see some good features from the Earth. Not near what you can see when you're actually there, but you can still see some nice features. But when you get further and further out in the solar system and you're talking about being 10 astronomical units away, a lot of these objects are very tiny. We can detect them, but we can't really see a lot of details about them. So. One of Saturn's moons for today. Any questions? Otherwise, we're on to the next chapter, chapter 14. Oh, I guess while we're on moons, I could leave, if you see my numbers up on the board from the previous class, for this real high-powered computer that's been developed, right? One megahertz, two, not, not two gigabytes, that's 2K, two kilobytes of RAM. 32 kilobytes ROM, so like disk space, 32. Kind of tiny. That was actually, we're talking about the moon. That's the power. That's, that's what the Apollo computers had. Their guidance computers traveling to the moon. That was, that, was the, that was their processing power. So, you know, we've got calculators and phones that overwhelm this right now. So, just since I had the numbers up there in case anyone was wondering about what, the, what this meant, what this high-powered computer is. But pretty amazing that 40 years ago, in fact, the anniversary of the 40th Land, uh, the last landing, 40th anniversary of the last landing on the moon will be next month. The last time we landed was December of 72. So that's what, computer, that's what advanced computing power was like 40, year, 40 years ago. Nowadays, that's, that's nothing, right? You're not going to pay thousands of dollars for that kind of computing power now. Especially when you can pull out your phone and outdo anything the Apollo guidance computer could do. But still, we were able to get to the moon several, five times using that kind of equipment. Oh, uh, let's see. Okay. Get this here. All right. 
So now we're going to move out. We finished, we, last time we finished talking about the remnants that were left over after a star formed. We talked about white dwarfs. We talked about neutron stars. We talked about black holes. Now we're going to go out and zoom out a little bit further into the universe. And the next biggest thing is we're still not getting that far away. We're looking at our own galaxy. So we're going to look at our own galaxy, the Milky Way. And here's a view, not of our own galaxy, but of another galaxy that's probably much like our own. Sort of what our galaxy looks like. We can't tell what our own galaxy looks like very easily. Why? Because we're stuck inside it. We can't get out of it. So comparison I'd use would be trying to determine what Blocker Hall looks like without leaving this classroom and never having left it and not using the internet to pull down a schematic or something. You know, no cheating like that. But if you, all you're here is here, you've got no other access, how do you find out what, well you've got a few windows you can look out. You can get an idea, but what, is the, what does it look like over there? Does it extend out three miles? Or does it end right outside that you don't know? The same thing is within our galaxy. We're stuck at one point in our galaxy and trying to look at it from inside and determine, you know, are there ten floors on top of us or two? We don't know, right? You can't, if you can't, leave, can't physically leave this room, you'd have no way to be able to tell. Whereas if you could leave and take, go out and go take an airplane, you know, fly up above it, you'd be easily able to see and sketch out exactly what the hall looks like. Well, if we could take a rocket ship and travel, you know, way out of our galaxy, travel out here and look back down on it, we'd probably see something similar to this. But again, we had to decipher that. This took a long time to be able to determine what our galaxy really looked like. You know, the Milky Way has been known for thousands of years. You can look out there and see the Milky Way, right? Thousands of years ago, people looked up at the sky and saw the Milky Way. It took a long time for us to be able to decipher what it really would look like and what it would really be like because we're stuck in the middle of it. It's a lot easier to see something when you're outside looking down than it is when you're trapped inside. So what we're going to look at, first of all, this chapter is solely focuses on our galaxy. The next chapter we'll look at galaxies in general. But we're going to look at our galaxy, general properties of it. How do we measure it? How do we determine what our galaxy is like? And what is that structure? What do we see when we you know, separate out the different parts of our galaxy? How did our galaxy form? So how do galaxies form? We talked about how stars form. Is it different? Is it a different way that galaxies formed? Spiral arms. Not present in all galaxies. A number of galaxies have them, the spiral type galaxies. But there are other galaxies that don't have any spiral arms. We saw that first galaxy picture I showed you was beautiful spiral arms there. Those aren't on all galaxies. Why not? You know, why don't other galaxies, why don't all the galaxies have spiral arms? Why are, why are there differences between that? We won't get into a lot of that now, but we'll look at in, in sort of what we look at, what we see with the spiral arms in our own galaxy. And hopefully in the next chapter use our understanding of that to figure out why some galaxies may have spiral arms and some may not. Mass of the Milky Way galaxy. We don't all know how to determine that now, right? After that yucky last lab, I know. We could determine it by looking at stars orbiting around the galaxy. If we look at stars that are way out there at the edge of the galaxy orbiting around it, we can determine how long they take to orbit, their period. We can determine how far away they are from the center of the galaxy. That gives us, that'll give us with that calculation that we did with Kepler's laws, that'll give us the mass of the galaxy. So we can actually determine that mass. So we got something we can actually measure and we can measure the mass of our own galaxy and of other galaxies. And then we'll finally turn in and look at the center of our galaxy. 
center of our galaxy is pretty much invisible to us, at least invisible light. So if we try to look at it in visible light, we don't see anything there. If you go out in summertime and look south, a little bit late now, it's pretty much setting by evening, early evening now. But if you go look out in the south earlier, you know, beginning of the class, if you looked out south, you would have been looking towards the center of our galaxy. Doesn't stand out, right? There's not this big giant glow. There's billions upon billions of stars there, but it's not this giant glow because we have all this material in between us in it that blocks it out. So it's like trying to look at the galaxy through a wall. You know? There can be a real bright light behind us there in the next room shining right at us. We're not going to see it because there's too much material between us and that light. Well, in the galaxy it's the same way. There's a lot of dust and material that absorbs all the light from the center of our galaxy and we can't see it. We can when we look in the radio part of the spectrum. So when we look at the radio, if you point a radio telescope due south, it's actually a, it's a bright signal there. You can actually detect the center of our galaxy in radio waves because the radio waves come, you know, they come right through the walls, right? You can usually pick up a signal inside a room. Well, the radio waves will travel right through all that dust that blocks out all the visible light very easily. So what do we see? Here we are, we're that little arrow out to the, we're that little tiny dot out to the side, little tiny blue dot out there, out to, the, out to the edge. That's about where we are located in our galaxy. Even that is not something we knew really well until recently, exactly where we fell in our galaxy. But we're way out here, maybe two-thirds, three-quarters of the way out from the center. Now as we look, these are some of the parts. Our galactic center is somewhere very deep down in here. There's a bulge around it. There's a disk of material around. We're in the disk of the galaxy out here. The disk is where those spiral arms are. But what you might see if you look in one of these directions, if you look like towards the center of our galaxy, this is the kind of view you get. That's the Milky Way that we see. So again, we have to use that and work backwards to interpret what does the rest of our galaxy look like? Because we don't see, you don't see the galactic bulge. You don't really you see sort of that there's a disk here only because you see stars concentrated in a very flat plane. They're not all over the place. Yeah, there's some stars way up here and some stars way down here, but you definitely see the concentration very close to the plane of the galaxy. So you know something about the disk. You don't see anything with spiral arms. You don't see any spiral arms there, right? I don't. You know, you can't see them directly just by looking at that. So we have to use other measurements and interpretations of what we do see from our galaxy looking outwards to interpreting what does it really look like, going back to that very first picture I showed you as to what the galaxy actually looks like. So that's where we are. And what you see here is if you look in say this direction towards the blue or towards the white, you're looking right inside the galaxy. You're going to see a lot of stars. That's when you're seeing the Milky Way. So if you're seeing the Milky Way, if you're looking this direction, you're going to see the Milky Way. If you're looking this direction, you'll see the Milky Way. That'll be a band that stretches completely across the sky. If you look at the directions of the red arrows, you're not going to see near as many stars. There's still stars there. There's stars all over the sky wherever you look. But can you see you're going to see a lot fewer stars if I look this direction or this direction. Yeah, there's some. You know, Earth is not that big to scale. Earth is a tiny pinpoint to scale, beyond even smaller than that. But you'll see a lot fewer stars looking in this direction versus looking in these other two. That's where we see the concentration of the Milky Way. So if you go out to a dark site and you're able to see that, you'll see you'd see this kind of band. That's actually the plane of our galaxy. That's your, in that case, you're looking out this direction 
or this direction or around in that plane. Now here's some other spiral galaxies. Again, we don't, we can't get, I can't give you a picture of our own galaxy that looks nice and pretty like this. We've got to look at other galaxies and use them as a comparison. So going back to my original example, one thing you could use, right, if we want to figure out what this, what blocker looks like without leaving this room and without any other prior knowledge, we could look out, we've got a few windows we can look out there. We could see other buildings. Could you use that to interpret? Well, let's see, all these other buildings are two stories tall. Does that mean this one is two stories tall? Does it prove anything? No, but does it give you some sort of evidence to see? If we looked out there and saw skyscrapers, would we think we're in a skyscraper? Would it, it wouldn't necessarily be right, but it would give you some kind of evidence. So we can use what we can observe, what we can see about our own galaxy, and look at a lot of other galaxies and use that to sort of interpret backwards what, we, what ours might, might look like. Now these are just some other galaxies. Some of them you're looking at face on, like you're right up above it looking down at the spiral arms. Others look a lot like our own galaxy. If you look at this one, that's almost that's like a mini Milky Way, right? You've got the dust there in the disk, and you've got that stream of material going across. That's what you see when you look at a galaxy at the edge. When you flatten it, it's a very, very flat. So when you're looking at it from the edge, if you tilt this one, instead of looking from up above here, if you looked this way at it, you'd see something much like this. And that's a lot like what we see in our own galaxy when we observe, when we observe it from inside. Obviously, it doesn't stretch across the entire sky, but we see that little, that little bit of it. Now, how do we measure the Milky Way? How do we determine where we lie in the Milky Way? Back in the 1700s, uh, William Herschel made some observations of this and essentially this is 1700, so we don't have no, no radio astronomy, no other wavelengths. All we got is visible light. We got telescopes. It's after the time of Galileo, so we do have telescopes. So what he did was to look in all different directions in the sky and count how many stars you saw. So this is one of the early, early maps of the Milky Way galaxy. Here we are, not quite at the center, a little bit off-centered of it but not, not quite at the center, but not very far away. I've already told you where we are. We're way, out in the, we're way out at the edge of the galaxy. So it's not correct, but it was one of the first measurements. And it was just by counting number of stars. So we'd look in this direction in the sky and count so many hundred of stars. Look in another direction, how many stars do I see? Some areas he saw lots of stars. So here he'd see lots and lots of stars. OK, we see a lot more stars. The Milky Way must extend out further in that direction. It's a good estimate. Turns out to be wrong because we missed some things, but it's a good starting point when you don't have anything else to go by. <coughs> so that's what he did, is he just looked at visible stars, counted how many he saw in each direction in the sky, and made sort of a map of what the galaxy must look like. It's not correct. I've already shown you some other ones, so it's not correct. But what he didn't realize, and we didn't know about, was that he wasn't seeing most of the galaxy. Especially towards the center, you can see you're looking towards the center, towards the, the, on the left side there, you're looking towards the center of our galaxy. There's so much dust in this part of the galaxy that it blocks out the light from all these stars back here. So there are many millions and billions of stars way off in that direction that we can't even see because there's too much dust blocking off that material. So we see absolutely nothing from them. So he estimate the size of the galaxy there, maybe 3,000 parsecs, a vast, over, vast underestimate. Vastly underestimating how big 
how big the galaxy was. The galaxy is much, much bigger than that, talking 25, 25 kiloparsecs or so, maybe. Much larger in size. Okay. Now, next step is we've got to try to determine these distances. We've gone back, we've tried to measure distances, we've looked at a couple different ways of doing distance, determining distances. Um, we looked at you know, parallax, right, measuring the shift as the star jumped from one side to the other. We looked at using the spectral classification, saying, okay, we found a star, we know it's a G2 star, it's just like the sun, and we know how bright it is, we know how bright it should be, we can figure out how far away it is. That was spectroscopic parallax. But now we're going to use another. We're going to come up to our next method that helps us see a little bit further away. Now we talked about, last chapter, I talked about variable stars in a way. I talked about novae, stars that had explosions on their surface. We talked about supernovae, stars that were blow blowing up. Those are what we call cataclysmic variables. Something intense is going on there. In some cases, it's tearing the star apart in a supernova. In some cases, it's a runaway uh, nuclear explosion on the surface of the star. It doesn't tear it apart, but it's still left there. Those are what we call cataclysmic variables. There are also stars that vary in brightness in a much smoother, much calmer way. Don't get tremendously bright, but they, vary, they change very regularly. Meaning that they'll get a little bit brighter and a little bit fainter. A little bit brighter and a little bit fainter. And if you looked at their brightness over time, you'd probably see something where they'd There'd be some brightness and they get a little bit brighter and then they get fainter and then they get brighter and then they get fainter and you'd see this kind of pattern which would be very regular and just continue on. They'd get brighter and they'd get fainter. There are, bar, are stars that are intrinsically variable that actually change their brightness on a regular basis which might be a day or 10 days or 100 days depending on the exact star but they'll change on a very regular basis. The cataclysmic variables are the ones that shot up in brightness and then sort of decayed down slowly. So, big difference between the two. Two of these, the two types that we're going to look at are called RR Lyrae stars and Cepheid variables. So there's two different types. RR Lyrae stars are named, they're each named after their um, initial discovered type of that star. So RR Lyrae is the name of a specific variable star. And variable stars are named by um, letters. So the very first variable star discovered in a constellation is given the letter R. Then it's S all the way down to Z. I can't do anything. It's not going to start at A now. You didn't expect it to start at A, right? Yeah, you did, but it's, you know, we've gone through enough of this now. You didn't think of that. Then we go back, and it's R, R would be the next one. So after you've gone R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z, then the next one is R, R, and so on, down to R, Z, and it just goes on. You don't, I'm not going to go through and test, but just to give you an idea of what that means in terms of how they name the variable stars. And it goes all the way around till you get to, what, R, so Q, Z. So you go R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Then you go back to the A's and go through till you get up there. And it, it labels the first couple hundred of variable stars. But that's just the naming. That's just where this name comes from. And this was the... So this is one of the earlier variable stars discovered in the constellation of Lyra. Now Lyra in the summer is one of the constellations that's almost straight overhead. So you look almost straight up to see it in the late summertime. Cepheids 
are named after the constellation where the first one was found, the Cepheid variables, which is constellation of Cepheus, which is in the northern part of the sky near the Big Dipper in Ursa Major. And again, it's just named after the first one of them that was discovered. But these are two types of variable stars. Two stars, two types of stars that will change their brightness. They'll get brighter and they'll get fainter. The nice thing is that makes them relatively easy to spot if you're looking at the brightness of stars over time. It makes them relatively easy to distinguish from other types of stars. And the fortunate thing is that it actually helps us in terms of determining distances. So here's a couple plots here. First is an RR Lyrae star. Nice thing with RR Lyrae stars is they're all about the same in terms of brightness. And they have a period from about half a day to a day. So they get brighter and fainter over the course of a day. That's the top, that's the top one up here. Gets a little bit brighter, gets a little bit fainter. It's depending on the exact star. They're all pretty close. The lower one, a Cepheid variable, will vary with a longer time period. So they start at about a day where the RR Lyrae stars end off, and they go up to maybe 100 days. So you can actually have some of them to take you know, many months to actually trace out how bright they're getting and how faint they're getting. It takes a long time to do that. But if you look at the brightness, you can see they're changing quite a bit. That RR Lyrae star is going from some sort of unit. If one is there, it's, going, it's getting 40% you know, brighter. It's getting 30 or 40% fainter. It's not just it's changing a little tiny bit. It's getting a lot brighter. It's getting a lot fainter. The Cepheids are the same way. You know, from some standard here, it gets about 50% brighter, 50 20-30% fainter. It changes significantly in brightness. Here's an example. Here's a picture of one. You don't see too many pictures of stars, so here's a picture of stars. Actually, two pictures put together. Now you take an image of it at one time, take an image of it at the other time, overlay them. Just not quite exactly right. Leave them off a little tiny bit. So you get every star matches up with its pair, right? There's two stars, two stars. Those are the same star, just two images overlapped. Well, here's these two. Well, one's a lot brighter than the other. So you've caught it one point here, and you catch it at one point here. You can see a big difference in the brightness. So these are another type of what we call variable stars. So these are the intrinsic variables. We had the cataclysmics. Those are the ones that if something explosive was going on, and we have these kind where something less explosive, not really explosive, is going on. Just something where the star is actually getting brighter and fainter, brighter and fainter. Now what happens is where do these come out? There's our HR diagram again. Told you you weren't even done with it after the last couple chapters. You're still going to see it a little bit here. Where do these fall on the HR diagram? Well, they fall in what we call the instability strip. So there's actually a section of the HR diagram where stars are unstable. Now, not so unstable that they're tearing themselves apart, but it means that balance, that pressure and gravity that we're fighting against each other, you know, pressure is trying to push the star and blow it apart, gravity is trying to pull it all down. That's in perfect balance when you're on the main sequence. And it's locked in an equilibrium, and it's just everything stays the same. When you get into the instability strip, it's not quite in balance. Because of the properties of the star, it, it's still stable to some extent, but it means there's a bigger change. When you have a little bit of an increase in temperature, say in the interior, and it produces a little bit more energy, it causes the star to expand, get brighter, so the star actually physically gets bigger and brighter, and then it will 
cool down in the interior and it will contract. So physically what we're seeing is these stars are expanding and contracting. They're getting bigger. They get bigger, they're going to have a bigger surface area, they're going to get brighter. If they're, then they contract, they get a smaller surface area, they get a little bit fainter. And it sort of, it stays stable because it, it gets a bigger oscillation. If you looked at this for the sun, it would be almost a straight line. Yeah, it could have a little bit of variation in it, it could have a little bit more energy being produced, but the stability is reached very, very quickly when you're in most of the HR diagram. When you're in this one section, gravity and pressure don't balance each other quite as well and you get big oscillations, you get big changes as you do with the Cepheids and the RR Lyrae stars. Now, they're important because they allow us to determine distances. You know, otherwise, okay, interesting, they vary, they vary in brightness, big deal. Right? If we can't use that in some way to determine the right, if we can't use, use it to determine something, you know, okay, it's cool, you know, nice picture of it, but what, what does it tell us? What we find is that there's a relationship. Here's the RR Lyrae stars. They're all just about the same brightness. There's not a big variation in brightness to them. That means if you detect an RR Lyrae star, you know it's luminosity. Remember, luminosity isn't how bright it appears to you. Luminosity is how bright it really is. So if you could actually measure how much was coming, how much energy was coming off each square meter on the surface, that's the luminosity. If we can determine the luminosity, we can tell you how bright it is, right? I can go look at it and say, oh, there how bright it is. I can measure that. If we get the luminosity and we get the apparent brightness, we can determine the distance. So I can determine the distance to an RR Lyrae star very easy. Once I identify it, I know how bright it is. Yes, there's a range around there, but we've got a pretty good idea of where it's going to be. And I can identify an RR Lyrae star. I can determine its distance. They're also about 100 times brighter than the sun meaning that we can see them over much larger distances. So we can actually use those to measure distances to stars that are further away. Even further, we can do the Cepheids. Cepheids don't all have the same brightness though, so it's not quite as easy. But there is a relationship between the pulsation period, how long does it take to go from brightest to brightest, you know, is that a day or 10 days or 100 days, and how bright the star really is. So it's found that there's a relationship we call the period luminosity relationship. So the period, if you measure the period, that's easy. Right? I can look at the star hundreds of times, figure out how long does it take. That's something I can measure. Boom. It takes it five and a half days to go from peak to peak. I can measure that very easily. If I know that, five and a half days tells me it's about a thousand times as bright as the sun. I know it's luminosity. And that lets me determine the distances again. So it's become, it's another way to determine distances. Some of these stars are 10,000, 100,000, almost a million times brighter than the sun for the very longest period, Cepheids. So we can see them much further away. If we can determine those, if we can actually measure those, we can determine the distances. So once we can measure those around our galaxy, for example, we can then map out distances within our galaxy a lot better. The nice thing is they're very bright stars, meaning that we can see them over large distances as well. Come on. So, again, some of this I've already given you. Let me just go over it one more time. So this does it in text, what I was talking about in terms of the pictures there last time. 
But this gives us the way to measure the distances. The RLI ray stars are all the same brightness. Exactly? No. They vary a little bit. There's a little bit of a range there, and that's fine that there's a slight difference, but we can get an approximate distance much better than we can get by any other method that we have so far. So we can measure, we know their luminosity. As soon as we identify a star as an RLI ray star, I know how luminous it is. I know its true magnitude just because I know what type of star it is. Then I know that I can find their apparent magnitude. That's the easy part. That's just looking how bright does it appear from the Earth. If we get the absolute magnitude or luminosity and the apparent magnitude, that allows us to determine the distance to the star. So as soon as I find an RLI ray star, I immediately know its luminosity. I quickly can measure its apparent magnitude and I get a distance to that star very easily. That helps with RLI ray stars because they're very prominent in globular clusters. Okay? So I can determine the distance in the globular cluster if it's far enough away. I might not be able to see most of the stars, but if I can pick out these stars and measure their periods, I might not be able to get a good spectrum to do a spectral uh, classification on it and use a spectroscopic parallax. But if I can measure the period, that's even easier. That's easier than going through all that spectral classification stuff, trying to determine whether it's an 02 or an, o, sorry, an 08 or an 09. This is a lot easier to determine. I can just measure the brightness. Boom, I've got it. And now I know the distance to all the stars in that cluster. Yes, some of them are a little bit closer. Some are a little bit further away. In the same way that some parts of Los Angeles are a little bit close to us and some are a little bit further away. Doesn't matter when we're looking at that kind of distance. So we can then determine the distance. Cepheids do not all have the same, but they have that, uh, they have a, their, their luminosity is correlated, meaning there's a re direct relationship between it and the period of oscillation. So the period is one day. It's a much slower, it's a much lower luminous Cepheid. If it's 10 days, it's a lot brighter. If it's 100 days, it's among the brightest of the Cepheids. So it's the same thing, same, same process that we go through to determine distances using Cepheids, except that we don't know it immediately. We don't just see one, oh, I know the luminosity. No, I know the period, and then I can use that and determine the luminosity. So it goes back to spectros to way to you way we did it in spectroscopic parallax. You measured the spectral class determined where it was on the HR diagram, then you'd get the luminosity. Here you've got to do it the other, you've got to do it the same way. You've got to measure the period. The period tells you the luminosity, and then you get that. Then you get the distance. <coughs> Excuse me. So both of these give us the way to measure distant, measure the distances to distant stars. So RLI ray stars are very nice for, again, globular clusters within our own galaxy. And in fact, we use them to be able to determine what our galaxy was much more like and the extent of our, how big our galaxy really was. Which we looked at Herschel's map, he vastly underestimated the size of our galaxy because of dust. Cepheids we can actually even observe in some other nearby galaxies. Not way out there. We're not measuring distances to the edge of the universe yet. We're getting there. That'll be the next few chapters. We'll get there. But we could actually use them to measure the distances to nearby galaxies. It helped us to determine that perhaps some of these um, distant spiral galaxies were really other galaxies like our own. You know, even 100 years ago, that was a big debate as to whether these galaxies, we saw these spiral nebulae as they were called, were they part of our own galaxy or were they further away? This is one of the things that helped to solve that problem, is actually being able to determine the distances. Because you see this spiral, you see this thing, it looks like a, it looks like a little spiral nebula, you see lots of nebulae. 
but you don't know how far away it is. You need a way to determine those distances. And that's what these help to give us. Now, as I said, we find the RR Lyrae stars in globular clusters. Globular clusters are scattered all around our galaxy. So they're not just in the disk like the stars are. They're some of the earlier parts of the galaxy that formed. So they're spread out all over the galaxy. Some are way up above it. Some are way down below it. You know, if you're in some of those, you've got a nice view of looking down at the galaxy. And you can actually see the spiral arms. Some of them here are actually closer into the center of the galaxy than us. And you can't see, you can't see much of anything looking out. But because we can see those globular clusters, we can see them, they're bright, we can see them over a large distance, we can see the RR Lyrae stars in them, we can use that to determine their distances. So as soon as I find a globular cluster, I look for some RR Lyrae stars in it, all of a sudden I've got the distance to that cluster. And I can start plotting those out. And if you recall, it was about 3 kiloparsecs that Herschel had estimated for the size of it, size of the galaxy. Here you got about 30 kiloparsecs, about 10 times the different distance. That's a much more accurate one because we'll be able to look all over the sky. We're not just stuck looking in the plane of the galaxy here. But with the new knowledge that we got about the RR Lyrae stars, we were able to then determine the extent of our galaxy and find out that we're not just looking at this little section and we're real close to the center of our galaxy, but we're actually way out at the edge. There's our center. We're actually 8,000 parsecs, about 25, 26,000 light years from the center of our galaxy. So we're not anywhere near the center of our galaxy. But it gives us a much better picture of what our galaxy is like. Now it doesn't tell us about the structure, it doesn't tell us about the spiral arms or anything else here, but it gives us an overall picture how big is our galaxy. And again, not that long ago we didn't know how big our galaxy. I don't know, hundred years ago there were a lot of things we didn't, we didn't know about our own galaxy. We've learned a lot more with the technology and with our, our understanding that has improved. To be able to put us, you know, where are we, in our, where do we exist in our galaxy? No, we're not at the center, right? First we were at the center of the solar system. Then maybe, okay, maybe the solar system at the center of the galaxy are real close to it. Nope, now we're not at the middle of anything. We're just sort of out in the middle, out at the edge of a, towards the edge, towards the edge of our galaxy here. Now the other nice thing about these is that when you're looking at these globular clusters, yes, some of them are here in the plane of the galaxy where they're hard to measure with the dust. But if you're looking this direction, you're looking out of the plane of our galaxy. All the dust is concentrated here along that blue dotted line. When you're looking at the other ones, they're much easier to see. You can see them over larger distances where you would not be able to see other objects you know, within our own galaxy when you're looking right in the plane where you're seeing all of that dust concentrated. But that tells us really what our galaxy would look like. Again, overall. Not the details of it, but overall. So here's our distance ladder. We're going to be coming back to this quite a bit in the next couple of chapters as we look at expanding distances even, even greater. We've got, again just to review, here's, a, here's us measuring distances. If we want to measure very nearby distances in the solar system, Mars, Venus, the Moon, that's about it. We can use radar, bounce a radar signal off it, time it to come, how long it takes to come back and measure how long, how long it is. Much further out in the solar system, the radar signal gets too weak. You try sending it out very far, the little bit that reflects off and comes back becomes too weak to detect. 
So you can use that out to about an astronomical unit. Doesn't help us a lot with determining distances other than very, very close things to us. Stellar parallax. That's the direct method. That actually uses the change in position of a nearby star relative to the more distant stars as the Earth moves around its orbit. So we can use that and actually measure 200, out to about 200 parsecs. 200 parsecs would be about 600, 650 light years. So, not very far. Look at the sizes we just had for the size of our galaxy. We're still not getting very far. We're measuring just the stars right around us with stellar parallax. Spectroscopic parallax helps a little bit more. We can do that pretty much within our galaxy. You know, 10,000 parsecs, 30,000 light years, you know, we can at least get towards you know, a good chunk of our galaxy. Our galaxy would be about 80 to 100,000 light years in size. But as long as we can measure the spectrum of a star, if we can get enough light from that star to measure a spectrum of it, determine where it falls on the main sequence, then we know exactly how bright it is and we can determine a distance. Again, that only works within our galaxy. We can't really get that much further, any further out. Maybe 10,000 parsecs, maybe about 30, 32,000 light years. Variable stars now give us a big jump. We go from you know, 30,000 light years to about 75 million light years. So we've gone, that's, that's MPC is million parsecs. You can see these, some of these largest cepheids out to 25 million parsecs away. Triple that roughly to give you light years, about 75 million light years. That's still a tiny fraction of the universe. Sounds so far. Now 75 million light years, my goodness, that's everything. Okay, the universe is about 14 billion light years in extent. We're still seeing just our little neighborhood with these. But it's a big jump from what we could do before. We've got other methods coming up that we'll look at a couple more where we can actually measure further distances. In fact, getting out to the edge of the universe. But the problem is, that they all depend on each other. You can't just use these without having some stars measured through this method. So you have to get the stellar parallax measurements good in order to calibrate this. Then you've got to use the next step. Every step builds on the previous one. So if you've got little errors here, they become slightly bigger errors and bigger errors. And as you go up and up the, the ladder, it gets, even, it gets even worse. So each step depends on the previous step in order to get the distances. So if you're making mistakes in this one, you're in trouble because it doesn't just carry through, but it magnifies as you go further up the ladder. Okay, so what does our galaxy look like? A spiral, gal spiral galaxy. We live in a spiral galaxy. This is not a picture of ours. This is more of a this is a drawing. About 30,000 parsecs across from edge to edge. Maybe about 4,000 parsecs thick. So relatively flattened. It has a bulge at the center. So there's the center, there's a bulge around that. And then you have the gas and dust in the spiral arms around it. That's where we are. There's our sun. Sun is vastly overbrightened there. You know, we'd be a little tiny speck in comparison. So it's vastly overbrightened to make it stand out. Within those, within that, we see in the disk. We see a lot of the objects we've talked about. We've talked about gas and dust. We've talked about open clusters of stars, young stars that have formed. O and B stars, again, found in the disk of the galaxy. Those are the very hot stars. Those are the ones that don't live very long, a few million years. They don't live, so they don't live a heck of a long time. So they're all confined to the disk of our galaxy. 
When you get further out, if you look further out, you see those globular clusters scattered around. Those are all older. If you remember, globular clusters were 10 billion years old. Remember, we did the, I had to do the age of one of them, right? We plotted out all those stars. One of them was a globular cluster. It was a relatively old object. All the globular clusters are like that. So they're probably area, things that were left over when the galaxy originally formed. Now, if we think about that, we looked at the formation of our solar system, right? You had this big blob that collapsed down to a flat disk. Think of a galaxy in much the same way. You had a big blob that formed, right? And it eventually collapsed down. Most of the material collapsed down. The gas and dust collapsed down into the disk. The earliest clusters that formed were sort of left behind when they formed. So they're left behind there. They're still out there orbiting around just the way they were. We have comets like that now, right? Comets in the solar system orbit at all sorts of odd angles. Globular clusters do the same thing. It's not an ordered orbit like you have here where everything's going the same way. When you look at the disk of the galaxy, everything orbits around. No, we're all going together. We're not going this way and the star next to us going this way. We're going to have car stars colliding into each other, going all, the, all different directions. No, just like on the highway, you've got all cars going in the same direction. So all the stars in the disk of our galaxy are going the same direction. These ones, these clusters and stars that are out here are going in all sorts of, all sorts of directions. So that's sort of just a general overview of what we think of the structure from our galaxy. And again, that's from using measurements of variable stars we did. That's from using measurements to give us the globular clusters. It's looking at the, du the dust in our galaxy, some of the bright stars that we can determine. And it's used done by looking at other galaxies. So look at other galaxies and compare them. Well, maybe we look a little bit like that. So maybe when we look out here, maybe we look a little bit about that building across the way. And using that. So we're using all sorts of things to kind of put together and piece together what our own galaxy actually looks like. But it's a very hard thing to determine when you're stuck inside it. Now, in terms of the formation, we see the different parts, the different parts of the galaxy. We have the halo. The halo is among the oldest, one of the oldest parts of the galaxy. And that's all that area around. The halo is older and has the globular clusters. Which are old. These are 10 to 12 billion years old. So not relatively recently formed. They've been along for a long, around for a long time. But we see the halo around. It's a spherical shut of shell around our own galaxy. You've got a disk, flattened disk of a galaxy, but around that imagine a big ball that is actually the halo. So all sorts of materials. There's lots of older stars there, globular clusters that are around that. No gas and dust. No gas or dust there. That means if you don't have gas and dust, you can't form new stars. So any stars that you find in the halo are very old. They formed a long time ago, back at a time when the halo must have had gas and dust. It's all been used up or it's collapsed down into the disk. And it's gone, so you can't form any stars. So all the stars you see there are old. So if we look in the halo, you're not going to see any open clusters. right? They're young. You're not going to see any O and B stars or emission nebulae. You're not going to find any of that in the halo. It's all very old stars. 
You might see stars like the sun. You might see red giant stars. You might see planetary nebulae. You could see those kind of objects because those will form at this, still form at this stage. But you're not going to see any of the young star forming objects that we saw. The disk is sort of the complete opposite of the halo. The disk is the younger area. And that has the gas, dust, what else? The emission nebulae. The O and V stars, open clusters, etc. So you have two distinct stages. You've got the halo, the very old part of the galaxy, and you've got the disk, which is the very young part of the galaxy. Now, the disk is younger. That doesn't mean it has no old stars in it. It does have old stars in it as well, but it's the only place you see the young stars. It's the only place you find all the gas and the dust. The only place you find the O and B stars, the open clusters, all the young objects are the only found in the disk of the galaxy. That's where the stars are currently forming. So when we look at these, we see only very old stars. When we look at these, we see a mixture but a concentration of younger stars. That's where we see all of the O and B stars. Then we had, we did the halo, which was you know, sort of the big disk around there. We had the disk sort of right through the center. So this is the young stars. That's the disk that's the young stars. The black is the halo that's the old stars. That's the old stars. And sort of around the center, you have a bulge. So it's sort of an expansion of the material. It's not as spread out as it is in the halo, which goes all the way out almost like a big sphere around it. It's not as concentrated down into almost a flat line as the disk is. But the bulge is sort of a mix. It's a mix of young stars and old stars. So it's sort of a combination where the two are coming together. So you've got some young stars still forming in there, but you've got a lot of older stars. So what we're seeing is going to tell us something about how the galaxy formed. And jumping ahead a little bit, but let's just say it tells you that because this halo is all old stars, it probably was the first thing to form. Formed, used up all its gas and dust, so whatever's left there is very old. Everything else collapsed in as the galaxy formed. The, youngs, the disk is where the young stars are, where things are currently forming still. The bulge is kind of in between. The spiral arms are stuck there in the, in the disk. So. We're going to come and look next time. We're going to go through a little bit more sort of the story of the formation of the galaxy, and I'll do that on, on Wednesday. Only big thing, make sure I get exam three. If you've got it now, I'll take it. If not, make sure I get it one way or another before 6 o'clock tomorrow. If you're doing it online, remember there's two parts, so make sure you do the, the fill-ins had to be done separately because they never came in the first exam. See you Wednesday.